Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you're tuned in. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm joined today by my co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Good morning, good afternoon to all. Thanks, Susan. And Susan, congratulations on winning the John M. Quigley Medal for Advancing Real Estate and Urban Economics from the American Real Estate and Urban Economics Association. Well done. Thank you. That's so kind of you. It's wonderful. And for this edition of Special Briefing, we have a great panel primed to explore a very, very thorny topic, the year ahead in 2022 for states and localities. Will we conquer COVID Omicron and finally get back to some kind of normal? Will the Federal Reserve quench inflation, or are we headed for recession? How high will interest rates rise? And will the boom in state and local revenues continue? It's not an easy year to be a forecaster or a government leader, for sure, and we've got both on the panel today. Before I introduce our panelists, however, just a couple of notes. We've taken questions from our great audience in advance, and we won't be handling live ones, but please feel free to follow up later. And this episode and past ones are all available 24-7 on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And by the way, thanks to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation for making special briefings possible. And now for the panel. It's what you're here for. We'll be hearing from two great economists, Torsten Sluck of Apollo Global and Mark Zandi of Moody's Economics. We'll check in with Lucy Dedian of the Tax Policy Center and with DeKalb County, Georgia Commissioner Larry Johnson, who's also president of the National Association of Counties. And thank you to NACO for making the commissioner available. And batting cleanup, Eric Kim, who's Mr. State and Local at Fitch Ratings. So to get us going, let's turn to Susan Walker to introduce our first guest. Susan. Thank you very much, Bill. Well, neither of our first two guests need much of an introduction, and I don't want to take away from the precious time of their telling us their forecast. So with no further ado, let's turn to Torsten Slog, who's the chief economist at Apollo, for their forecast for 2022. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much for having me today. In summary, the U.S. economy continues to do well. Obviously, Omicron has been holding back consumption on some high-frequency indicators. More recently, we've seen restaurant bookings go down. We've seen the TSA travel data also go down. We've also seen some of the credit card data look a little bit worse in the last month or two. But broadly speaking, as the expectation is, Omicron will eventually burn out. And that's definitely the expectation from the Federal Reserve. We should expect to see growth in consumer spending pick up again over the coming quarters. We should also expect growth in CapEx spending to pick up over the coming quarters. So broadly speaking, the recovery has taken a little bit of a break here because of Omicron, but we should expect to see the economy come back over the coming six to 12 months and generally push things 
in the right direction. That means, of course, also that we are likely to see employment growth come back again. We saw employment growth that was a little bit weak in the last few months, again, partly because of Omicron, but that should begin to also normalize over again in the coming quarters. We are still looking at a labor market that looks relatively overheated even at this point. If you look at total employment in the US economy today, is still 4 million jobs lower than where it was in February of 2020. So in that sense, we still have a level of employment that is not quite at the level we were at before the pandemic began. But at the same time, we have begun to see wages move higher, and certainly in particular parts of the economy. And all that should argue still for the labor market getting hotter and hotter, if you will, and therefore closer and closer to full employment. So the conclusion from real economy perspective is that um, we have been coming back from COVID. It's been taking some time. We are taking a little bit of break, but we should, again, over the coming, again, six to 12 months, begin to see the economy and growth accelerate. And that should, broadly speaking, be good news for growth in the economy and good news, broadly speaking, also for jobs. Tristan, before we send to Mark, you, we stopped you from presenting your heat map. Do you want to make a comment on that briefly? Yeah, so one way, of course, of looking at where we are in the business cycle is to try to look at various indicators and think about how red hot are different areas of the economy. And if you look at a heat map, broadly speaking, of the macroeconomic indicators, there are some areas that are certainly looking particularly hot, especially, of course, inflation. You're also looking at relatively red hot number of indicators in the labor market. The quits rate is record high, meaning the share of people who are working who voluntarily quits their job every month is at the highest level in 20 years. Also, if you look at the unemployment rate at 3.9%, it's also relatively red hot. So number of indicators are pointing in the direction that the Federal Reserve is right when they are talking about that it is time to begin to cool the economy down. From a financial market perspective, there's an interesting split that we're looking at, of course, stock markets that are relatively highly valued, at least by historical standards, credit spreads that are relatively narrow. But if you look at the level of interest rates, and this, of course, is important for state and local governments, we still have a low level of interest rates, not only in the front end of the yield curve, but also long-term interest rates, 10-year interest rates are still even though they have gone up a little bit, still very low by historical standards. So there the heat map is not red. It's actually more green in the sense that we have not seen the tightening in financial conditions that we would normally have seen, or at least that, the, that would normally have been associated with the recovery. So in short, Susan, the answer to your question is that the economy is relatively late cycle by a number of indicators. But when it comes to financial markets, we're also a little bit late cycle when it comes to risky assets, meaning the stock market and credit. But the little silver line here is that the level of interest rates, and this is important, of course, for financing of munis and financing in terms of treasuries, is still relatively low. So there's an important debate about how much can interest rates go up and will some of those sell-offs we have seen in risky assets in the stock market and credit, will that come back and limit how much treasury rates are moving higher? But the short answer is that the economy is probably relatively late cycle, which is why the Fed is hiking rates. Whereas on the rate side, on the Fed funds rate and on 10-year rates, we still have relatively low levels. So that's a very important debate when you look at the outlook for financing for state and local governments. Thank you, Torsten. We'll take that up again at the end of everyone's presentations. Let me turn to Mark Zandi. It's terrific to have you with us as well, Mark. Mark is a dear friend and also Penn Institute of Urban Research Fellow, as well as being extremely well known as Torsten is for their annual forecast. And Mark is just coming off of testifying to Congress. Mark, what did you tell Congress about our future? It's good to be with you. It's good to see you and, and Bill and 
Good to be on with Torsten. Uh, you may not realize that, but Torsten and I, we're kind of a tag team. We've done this a number of times over the years. And he's always right. I don't know how he does it, but he's always right. Uh, so, uh, and that's why we have him, and you are too, and that's why we have yeah. him. <laughs> well, he's right again. I, I agree with Torsten that the outlook for the economy is uh, good. I think Omicron obviously is going to do some damage. Looks like employment in January is actually going to decline, just given the data we're, we're getting on UI claims and the number of people that are out sick. But I expect Omicron to pass through quickly and the economy to revive, and the year should be a solid one. I expect GDP growth of about 4%, and that means we'll create enough jobs to get the economy back to full employment. And we can debate what that means, but you know, full employment by the end of the year. A couple of key assumptions there. One is that the pandemic continues to recede. And what I mean by that is that each wave of the virus is less disruptive to the healthcare system and economy than the preceding wave. So Omicron is going to do damage, but I don't think as much damage as Delta did. That did a fair amount of damage and certainly not as much damage as the wave that passed through this time last year. So that's a key assumption. You know, obviously the pandemic can go in lots of different directions. I'm also assuming that the Federal Reserve is going to normalize policy quickly here because we are coming into full employment. And I do expect the Fed to end its quantitative easing, its bond buying by March. That's the script they've laid out for us. And to quickly start raising interest rates. So I expect four rate hikes this year, quarter point each, put the funds rate at 1% by the end of the year. And I do expect long rates to rise too. They've you know, obviously pushed up here in the last few weeks. We're at 1.85% on the 10-year yield, which is the highest it's been since the pandemic hit. I say this with a great deal of intrepidation because bond yields go up and down and all around. But I think by the end of the year, we should have a 10-year yield that's closer to 2.5%, which would put fixed mortgage rates, which had been sub-3 at their low, back closer to 4. Still very low by, Torsten was pointing out, very low by historical standards, but considerably higher than what we've seen during the pandemic. I also am sanguine about inflation, and this is, uh, I say this with a intrepidation as well. I do think inflation is peaking. So consumer price inflation is currently 7%. That's the CPI year over year through December. And I expect it to be about half that by this time next year and close to the Federal Reserve's target by mid-2023, which on CPI would be something like two and a quarter percent, something like that. The reason for this optimism is that my diagnosis as to why inflation is elevated is that it's largely a supply side phenomenon. It's due to the pandemic. It's always demand and supply. A year ago, inflation started to pick up. That was demand. That was vaccines, the economy reopened, businesses that had slashed prices during the pandemic started to normalize them. You know, think rental cars or hotels or airlines. The American Rescue Plan helped to support demand, so that helped to generate more inflation. But at that point, the higher inflation was more a feature than a bug. You may recall the inflation has been too low for a long period of time, and we were hoping to get inflation up. This recent surge in inflation since in the last six months, and this is what's put inflation kind of top of mind and the concern, that's the pandemic. More specifically, the Delta wave, as I said earlier, a lot of damage not only to our economy, but to the entire global economy, particularly Asia, and more specifically Southeast Asia, where a lot of the global supply chains begin. So the poster child for this is the vehicle industry. 
take the F-150. That's the uh, most popular vehicle produced in the United States. That relies on chips that come from a couple chip plants in Malaysia. They shut down because of COVID, the COVID protocol in Malaysia. At that point, Malaysia was unvaccinated, largely unvaccinated. They shut it down. No chips, no production. Inventories collapsed. Vehicle prices have gone skyward. In fact, if you look at the acceleration in inflation over the past year to 7%, almost one-fourth of that acceleration is new and used car prices. So that alone has caused prices to rise. And then, you know, of course, the pandemic has scrambled demand and supply dynamics in all kinds of industries and, and markets. The energy market, we saw demand start to pick up, supply a lot slower to pick up, which is not atypical coming out of recessions, but it was it was reinforced by the pandemic dynamics. And the energy, higher energy prices has also contributed significantly to the higher inflation. So if you buy into my diagnosis, then if you think the pandemic is going to recede and that we're getting better at managing through the waves of the pandemic, I expect inflation to recede as well. Now, I do think it's necessary for the Federal Reserve to normalize policy quickly because even if my diagnosis is correct and inflation recedes, again, the economy is coming into full employment and we got to make sure that you know, we don't blow past full employment and you know, more fundamental sources of inflation start to develop. But uh, I think the Fed's up to that task and will accomplish this. One final thing I'll say, if I'm wrong, I'm going to blame it on Torsten. No, uh, you know, if I'm wrong, it will be because inflation, that the pandemic is more disruptive. The ways of the pandemic that we're going to suffer through going forward is going to be more disruptive than I anticipate. And supply chains more scrambled, labor markets more scrambled for longer. If that continues, that can bleed into inflation expectations. And once that happens, then we're in a different world of hurt and you know, kind of a different scenario, more of a boom bust kind of scenario where the potential for recession probably in 2023 are, are not inconsequential. So my baseline scenario is that the scenario in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes is a very sanguine one. I do think the risks of something more untoward happening are not inconsequential and should be considered in people's planning. Thank you, Mark. We'll turn back to those potential risks as we uh, return when we get to the moderated discussion. Now we are going to hear about state tax revenues, and I will turn to Bill to introduce our next speaker on that topic. Thank you very much, Susan. I see Lucy's on with us. Lucy Dedayan, first at the Rockefeller Institute and, and now at Urban Brookings, is, as I mentioned before, the keeper of stats on state tax revenues. There is no better source. When I was a reporter, this is where we turn to. We've got an interesting picture. State revenues were, were finally cooking uh, in 2019. Rainy day funds were near a record high. Things were looking pretty good. Then we had the big collapse, and then the cavalry came to the rescue, individuals and state and local governments, and all of a sudden, state and local revenues are surging again. So, Lucy, where are we now, and how long does this last, and what are the risks of a fiscal cliff once the federal aid starts to disappear? Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for having me. So, I'm going to give you a um, quick overview of the current picture of the state and local government tax revenues. It's important to mention that when the pandemic started spreading across the nation, everyone was expecting that we will see 
steep declines in state and local government tax revenues. Nearly two years into the pandemic, we are seeing the opposite. We are seeing state and local government tax revenues rebounding and showing really strong growth. But there are large variations in fiscal and economic performance across states and localities. And it's important to emphasize that the pandemic-induced recession had a very uneven impact on states and localities, depending on their tax structures, industry mix, and population density. Now, let me discuss why we are seeing strong growth in state tax revenues. And I will discuss it by revenue source. Let's look at income tax revenues. We have seen strong growth in income tax revenues for the following reasons. First, the inflation. Income tax increases in states with progressive income tax structures and where income tax brackets are not adjusted to inflations can reflect some bracket creep due to higher inflation rates observed in the past 12 months. In other words, when income and prices rise, but the brackets stay fixed, more income is taxed at higher rates. Reason number two is that we have seen strong stock market performance in the past year. The stock market on average increased by 33%, and this is the highest for the last few decades. And that's compared to calendar year 2020. If we compare it to 2019, the growth is even much higher. In other words, when we have a strong stock market performance, it translates into higher income taxes on capital gains. And um, another reason for strong income tax revenues is that it's quite likely that some high income taxpayers might have shifted income from tax year 2022 into tax year 2021 in anticipation of higher tax rates on capital gains as proposed by the federal government. One other reason for strong revenue performance for income tax revenues is the IPO markets uh, rippled. We have seen an IPO bonanza, that is, large number of privately held businesses went public and made their shares of stock available to the public for the first time. And usually, IPOs generate significant amount of revenues. Looking at the corporate income tax revenues, they too saw large increase. And once again, it's highly likely that the federal government go ahead and increase the tax rate on corporations, which means that it's likely that some corporations again accelerated income into tax year 2021 in anticipation of higher tax rates. Looking at the sales tax revenues, inflation again had an impact. Sales tax revenues rise as prices rise since sales tax is based on a percentage of the price. One other reason is that during the pandemic, we have seen a shift in consumer spending habits. Consumers are spending far more on goods rather than on services, and usually goods are subject to sales tax, whereas many services are either exempt from sales tax or are taxed at a lower rate. Looking at the motor fuel tax revenues, which is another major source of tax revenues. Again, the 
increase in prices in gas led to increases in motor fuel tax revenues, particularly at the states that tie that tax based on the rate they have uh, rather than uh, how many gallons of gasoline a consumer purchases. These are the reasons why I think the, we are in a fiscal cliff and I believe that the stock market performance cannot really continue with the same rate as we have observed in the last year. If it slows down, we will see much lower revenues from the income tax revenues. If we look at the components of the income tax revenues, the withholding increased only by 13%, whereas the non-withholding income increased by 40%. So if the stock market cools down, we will see far less growth in revenues from income tax revenues. And as Bill mentioned, the question is what will happen to state and local government tax revenues once the federal aid runs out? Another thing is that most states are concerned about the sales tax revenues once we see shift back in spending on services rather than on goods. I mean, once the pandemic is behind us, it's highly likely that consumers will be spending more on services rather than on goods. Well, thank you, Lucy. We're going to drill down to the county level in about 10 seconds, but first, a couple of words of reminders that you are tuned into Special Briefing, co-hosted by Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. Today's session and all of our past events are available on the Volcker Alliance and IUR websites. Just Google them to get the URL. We want to thank the Century Foundation, the Volcker Alliance, and members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board for supporting this and all of our other programs in special briefing. So commercials out of, out of the way. Let's go to Larry Johnson. And I want to ask you, we've, we've seen how this is playing out in the States. How is this outlook playing out at the county level in DeKalb County and nationally? And also, what are you seeing in, in the question of equity in this economic recovery? Where does work need to be done? Thank you for the question and good morning, good afternoon, evening to everybody. I think where counties come in, I think is very crucial because we where the rubber meets the road. I mean, we out here every day as county elected officials with the grocery store, we're walking in neighborhoods, we're on the trails, and we're seeing real life situations happen as it play out. And so from a county perspective, as we look at the funding that we received so far from CARES, I mean, just for instance, for us in DeKalb, this past weekend, we gave out 10,000 free COVID home tests to residents in our community. We have a lot of folks who are in need and want to make, have an impact, and we made sure that we have that. We still have more, but we, we made available. Then earlier, we have a lot of middle-class folks who are in need of food. And so we've started a food distribution lines in our communities where folks can come and get fresh fruits and vegetables in their lives. We've also started a rental eviction and rental assistance program. We spent over $20 million so far or more to make sure people can stay in their homes during this pandemic crisis. And so what has been vital to us as we look at the capacity of the residents that we serve in the counties are trying to, like I tell people, counties didn't have to get ready, we stay ready. Because we've always had to deal with different economic crises and we don't have a chance. I mean, we deal with all economic stratas in our communities from rich to middle-class to poor every day. And so we have to be able to provide those resources and make things happen. And so 
That's what we deal with. The equity part is, is that we have to make sure as we come out this pandemic that all of the terms of uh, racial and ethnic approaches to this pandemic, that those groups are getting equal treatment and met to make things happen economically, as well as, as we move forth around health. And so that's where counties are. And that's what we're putting our energy towards. And we got to make it happen. County governments, we don't get the luxury of shutting down. We can't print money. We have to provide services where the federal government is in session or out of session. And so we just learned how to deal in crises to make the most of a situation. Yes, we're at a breaking point, but I tell people this is a turning point for counties because as we look at going virtual, as we look at services being provided online, this has allowed our technology to be further expanded. And now, of course, as NACO's done, we push for broadband. And now, guess what? People look at broadband as infrastructure. And so that is critical to schools, that's critical to small businesses, that's critical to everyday life as we function and try to do things in normalcy. And I tell people, this is Zoom, we call it, but I call it Hollywood Squares for short, on how do we try to connect with people. And we've tried to make it happen. So that's what counties are. That's where we are in the system of trying to deal with a twindemic because we got the flu going on as well as the pandemic. And we work closely with our public health infrastructure to make it happen. Thank you, Commissioner Johnson. Larry, we'll turn back to some of these very local issues. I realize the counties are on the front line delivering health care, especially even the, the big cities that are city counties, that this is the county part of life. And we really appreciate and value what you're doing. So thank you and thank you to NACO for joining us today. We're gonna to go now to, to Eric Kim from Fitch Ratings. The infrastructure bill that just passed and the American Rescue Plan both have some pretty significant infrastructure components in them. There's $550 billion in new money in the Infrastructure and Jobs Act. So we're not talking about small change. How are states and localities going to leverage this money in the bond market, maybe in the deal market, the private P3 market? And also, what's your outlook for state ratings and county and city ratings as we go forward? Thanks, Bill. So let me take those questions in reverse order. I'll start with the outlook and then I'll get to our, our thoughts on what the infrastructure bill means. So as we've heard from Torsten and Mark earlier, economic growth is likely to continue, but at a slower pace than we saw in 2021. And that does have direct consequences for state and local government credit quality, particularly state governments, given how closely linked state tax revenue sources, but mainly income and sales taxes, are tied to economic performance. I think Lucy's discussion really illustrates that linkage pretty clearly. So for 2022, Fitch is projecting U.S. GDP growth of 3.7%. That's down from the 5.7% we estimate for 2021, but still well ahead of the 2% average we were seeing pre-pandemic. So strong economic growth is generally a positive indicator for state and local governments. And that's one of the reasons we have our sector outlook at stable for 2022. You know, at a very basic level, personal income and consumer spending should continue to grow and that will support tax revenue gains. Lucy spoke about the trends in tax collections at an aggregate level. We've also been closely following states that have started reporting some December data and it's showing continued gains. Virginia's general fund collections up 14% year over year from July through December. Illinois' general fund taxes were up 6% and Georgia's net taxes up 18% in that same period. On the local government side, tax revenues tend to see less year-to-year -year movement since more stable property taxes are the, the key driver there. Housing prices saw a lot of growth during the pandemic. 
We think that's going to boost tax assessments as those are phased in over several years. But we also expect that price appreciation will start to slow in this year in 2022 with interest rates set to rise and affordability becoming more of a roadblock. And COVID, of course, is, is still playing a role. We have cities with large downtown office cores like New York and Chicago, they're still lagging in terms of employment recovery. And their commercial real estate valuations have seen some declines and remain vulnerable as companies and office workers have been slow to fully return. We look at data from Castle, it's a national provider of access control systems. Their most recent report through last week shows average office occupancy nationally of just 27.9% compared to the pre-pandemic level. At the beginning of December, that was 40%. The key difference, of course, has been the Omicron variant. And the trend was really national. A place like Austin had reached nearly 60% occupancy in early December, now down to just over 40%. New York had peaked at 37% in the first week of December. That's now down to just below 20%. On the flip side, we have seen some localities in less dense areas that have benefited from the shifts to a hybrid work environment. And we think 2022 is going to be an important year to see how those start to shake out over the longer term. The way this plays out on the local government side is really location specific. For example, in Austin, overall assessed values continue to increase despite offices still being far off that pre-pandemic capacity and property taxes are the key revenue source. So the city anticipates continued revenue growth. New York City, commercial real estate is more important to the tax base for a few different reasons. And that means the city's actually anticipating a decline in overall assessment and a decline in property tax revenues, and actually decline in overall tax revenues. There's more potential for some upside in New York's numbers because income and sales taxes are also pretty important to the city, and those have been coming in somewhat above expectations. So the overall economic picture nationally is positive, but there's still some very real uncertainty and downside risks. Of course, we have the pandemic. It's continuing, unfortunately, and we're in the middle of another surge right now, there's the potential that it has deeper economic consequences than we're currently expecting, or that we get something like a more dangerous variant in the future. Uh, we're also seeing inflation and labor shortages starting to put wage pressures on governments, and that does have the potential to escalate this year. Now, for some governments, pension costs are also an important budget consideration, and there could be some actually some relief on that front, given the strong market performance through the pandemic. So as those market gains get smoothed into the calculation for annual contributions, we'll see some slower overall growth. Of course, markets go down as well. Uh, we've started seeing that since the start of the year. So there's some downside risk on that front as well. The federal pandemic aid, we think, that was dedicated to states and locals last year does provide a pretty important fiscal cushion for the downside risks in, in 2022. Most of that $350 billion under the American Rescue Plan Act hasn't actually been spent yet. So it's a very useful contingency for governments. For example, just looking at states and the District of Columbia, they received $155 billion of direct ARPA aid from the Treasury in 2021. About $100 billion has been programmed for uses, but most of those plans cover multiple years. So just a fraction of that has actually been spent. And there's another $39.5 billion that will be sent out later this year by Treasury to states and D.C., Local governments only received half of their allocation of $130 billion last year, and the balance of $65 billion comes later this year. So what this means is that the benefits of this pandemic aid are, are going to continue flowing through state and local budgets for several years. And in the near term, 
those dollars are going to be sitting on balance sheets ready to be deployed if some of the downside economic risks we've been talking about today do become reality. Now, I want to touch on the infrastructure bill. It's a second point I want to make on federal spending. It's something you asked about, Bill. So obviously, the, the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act the president signed at the end of last year. In the near term, the additional federal dollars, in our view, are actually not going to mean much for economic growth because that 550 in new money, for example, that's over 10 years, right? That's going to take some time to flow through. But over the longer term, we think the potential benefits could be more meaningful. Infrastructure needs are really the main driver of debt issuance for state and local governments here in the US. But we see reporting of those needs as somewhat opaque and inconsistent, creating what we think of as a set of hidden liabilities for, for many governments. The infrastructure bill starts to make some investments, start chipping away at those. For example, 7% of bridges nationally are rated in poor condition, according to the Federal Highway Administration's 2021 report. And in some states, that number was as high as 15 or 20%. The infrastructure bill dedicates nearly $40 billion for a new bridge investment program to help address that. But as helpful as that is, ultimately, the federal bill is one time in nature and responsibility for long-term sustainable transportation funding remains primarily with state and local governments. And we've seen that over the past 10 years or so, a number of states and locals have done things on their end to increase transportation funding. And we expect to continue to see that going forward. So with that, I'll turn it back to Susan now. Thank you so much, Eric, and to all our panelists, thank you for a great discussion so far, which has been a pretty bullish conversation, actually. And I want to turn back to our economists and, and to you too, Eric, and others, who, Lucy and Larry as well. What happens if we have this sort of risk going forward revealed, that is inflation doesn't decrease for some of the reasons that Mark has expressed so fast. And as a result, interest rates, in fact, don't stay low as they are so historically low, as Torsten has said, and surprisingly low, perhaps. Given that our debt-to-GDP ratio is now 100%, you can do the math, $23 trillion, right? Perhaps you want to start us off on this, person and then Mark comment. Yes, so the problem is that the debt level is now more than 100% of GDP for the government. I should just mention, Susan, if there's the debt held by the public is $23 trillion, 1% of $23 trillion, that's $230 billion. So if interest rates go up by 1%, the federal government will have to pay 230 billion more in interest payments every year. So let's say, just for the sake of this scenario here, that the interest rates go up by 2%, then we're up to roughly 500 billion more in interest payments. Interest payments last year for the federal government was already 500 billion. So that means that if interest rates just go up by 2%, we'll have interest payments of uh, roughly a trillion every year. This may take some time and it's not all floating rate and there's some other assumptions about maturity of debt outstanding. But the conclusion is that we are in the U.S. government, it's just more vulnerable to higher interest rates than it's ever been before. So that's, of course, a risk because that money has to then to be taken from elsewhere. Alternatively, taxes have to go up. But you absolutely, high interest rates is more and more of a challenge and you're more and more vulnerable as an economy if that happens with a very high debt level. So the starting point here for rising rates on that front is creating more vulnerabilities, not in the very near term as we're discussing because rates will stay low, but under the scenario that rates could go up, this could certainly become a risk. Torsten, so the federal government budget is what? That one trillion would be what percentage of the federal budget? So the budget deficit is roughly 5% of GDP at the moment. 
So, and that means if we have another trillion because of debt payments, that's of course, uh, then we get up to 10%. And then it does become very unsustainable very quickly. Of course, no one is talking about this as a, an IMF situation where you have an emerging market that becomes, things becomes not financed. But it is important in the broader backdrop here that the Federal Reserve during the pandemic has bought on average $150 billion in treasuries every single month. And as Mark mentioned, that's about to end here in a few months by the end of March. So that means in financial markets, we spend so much time on, uh, well, who's going to buy treasuries? Now that the Fed is no longer buying program where they're buying 80 billion in treasuries every month and 40 billion in, in mortgages. And once that starts to go away and it's already sliding lower, then the question does become, well, can rates stay low? And will there be others stepping in, foreigners, households, pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, who will be the marginal buyer? if the Fed is no longer buying the fairly substantial amounts that they have been buying for now quite some time during the pandemic. Thank you, Tyson. Mark, your thoughts? Well, I think if we get into the alternative scenario where inflation remains more persistent and inflation expectations start to rise and we get into kind of a wage price dynamic where workers expect inflation to be high, demand higher wages, businesses say, hey, I'll pay the higher wages because I think I can pass that through to my customer and you get into this kind of very negative kind of dynamic, which is the dynamic that prevailed in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s. That would be too much for the Federal Reserve to ignore and they would step on the brakes a lot harder to break that kind of dynamic because they realize that in the long run, the economic cost of not doing so would be greater. And we've learned that lesson. And that's kind of a classic business cycle. That's what kind of happens at the end of business cycles. And it ends generally ends badly, more often than not, meaning you end up in recession. I think a number of indicators to look at to gauge whether that scenario is going to come to pass. I mean, first, inflation expectations, lots of ways of measuring that. My favorite are those that come from investors because they're putting their money where their mouth is. So five-year, five-year forwards, five-year break-evens, that kind of thing. Right now, they look fine, no problem, but if they start migrating higher, then maybe that alternative scenario is going to come to pass. And then if we're going to go into recession, the thing I find, you know, I think is very valuable is the shape of the yield curve. That's the difference between long-term rates and short-term rates. And the most prescient, at least historically, has been the 10-year versus the federal funds rate. If the federal funds rate, because the Fed's now in this scenario putting its foot on the brakes and short-term rates are rising. So if the funds rate rises above the 10-year yield, that's pretty clear indication the economy is going to have some real trouble and likely to go into recession 12, 18 months later. Interestingly enough, the yield curve did invert prior to the recession we experienced with the pandemic. So one could have made the argument, I think some were, and I was kind of making the argument, not strongly, but making the argument that even if we hadn't had the pandemic, the economy was going to have a tough 2020. We were, you know, I remember. Because we were late cycle, you know, yes, as Dorsey was pointing out. So we're back to that again. So let's ask, does Larry, Lucy, Eric want to add to this in terms of if we, God forbid, go into a recession, that's the downside risk, cautionary, it's not, no one's predicting it. How are states and localities set up to deal with that at this point? Can I just amplify on that before sure, go ahead, we go to, to Lucy and Commissioner Johnson, because it's a related question. One of our listeners asked this, what are the capacity constraints right now 
at the local level to implement. You've got 10 years of infrastructure money coming. So do you have the capacity to implement this and especially to deliver more equitable and sustainable outcomes? You have to find people to manage the projects, work on the projects, get the steel or the chips or the broadband transceivers, whatever it is, and decide where these projects are going to be located. We have an immediate inflation problem, and we have a long-term problem as well. That's a great question, and I think I can answer it as it relates to counties, is that we have departments already set up in our county governments that deal with bridges, that deal with sidewalks, that deal with trails, that deal with our airports. We run 44% of the roads and highways are owned and run by counties, a third of the airports over a thousand hospitals, 1500 public health departments. We have the capacity based on what you're saying infrastructure wise and experts in those departments that can really help us to galvanize and find our way through. Of course, inflation will play a role. Of course, as we look at hiring, just like the private sector, public sector will have some challenges. But in the 10 year run, If you look at the backlog, and I think you heard about bridges and how they are in the state of disrepair, you have counties who have master plans and strategies already. If they have that funding, they're ready to move. It's a matter of the federal government getting these funds out to these counties quick enough for them to use this to build that capacity. So as it relates to the question, I think if you look at local government and counties, they have plans, they have goals already set out. But a lot of times it was that we had lack of funds. And so now if those funds can get to us quickly, we can now put in process. And then those, guess what? Those funds go to hire people locally, go to the grocery stores. They hire the local person who may sell concrete, who has a trucking company to haul. So we have the capacity with these funds to hire people locally that can help impact job growth and, and unemployment in a positive manner as well. I need to go out and buy a truck. <laughs> a food truck too. Get a food mm-hmm. truck too now. Darn right. Lucy and Eric, Susan raised a, a great question. Tell us how this plays out. I can jump in. In terms of states, and I'll, I'll give that perspective specifically, and how prepared they are for a potential downturn. Again, not the base case, right? That, let's be clear about that. We think states are, are, are well positioned. Our state ratings are generally very high, AAA, AA plus, uh, typically. And we have outliers, of course. You know, Illinois comes to mind, certainly. But for the most part, states are, are very well positioned to deal with downturns. We saw that in the pandemic when almost everyone saw at least a short-term sort of precipitous fall in tax revenues and states were able to manage fairly well through that because they came in with with solid reserves and lots of budgetary flexibility. Their reserves in some cases, many cases are even better than they were actually pre-pandemic. The tax revenue performance that Lucy talked about earlier, I can't underestimate how strong and robust that has been relative to the expectations that governments put in place and budgeted around at the start of the pandemic and that's key. What that meant was there were large revenue surpluses that allowed states to do things with that excess money. You know, Pennsylvania, for example, ended with nearly $3 billion surplus in 2021, and they put most of that into reserves. They didn't really have reserves before that, and all of a sudden, they were able to add a huge chunk of money into reserves. So from our perspective, states overall, from a credit view, are are well-positioned to deal with a potential downturn. 
Yeah, that's correct. States have rainy day funds available. And what is even promising is that we see that local governments are also putting aside money in rainy day funds. And so, of course, all depends on what happens next. Yeah like we have been seeing growth in natural disasters, in the number of wildfires, in the number of hurricanes. And, you know, it's for my advice would always be like, it's better be prepared than be sorry. And I'm glad that states have strong rainy day funds, but that doesn't mean that they have to go ahead and cut taxes as we have seen in the past year, a record number of states have cut income tax rates and which translates into less revenue and that can have a longer-term impact on state budgets. I might add that New York Governor Kathy Hochul in her budget message this week proposed putting substantial funds, I think $15 billion, into the state rainy day fund. New York has been known for very good rules, very good statutes, rules on paper, and very good procedures, and very minimal rainy day fund balances, only a couple percent of general fund spending. This is a fundamental shift uh, if the legislature goes along with it. So there, even though the ARPA legislation doesn't allow states, counties, and cities to put federal money into rainy day funds. Money is fungible. Everybody uses cash accounting except for New York City. And so there is money left over at the end of the day, which is very encouraging. Yeah, just to add to that, by counties have to, by law, have to have a balanced budget. So we can't run deficits. And so that has helped us physically to be sound and steady over these years. And then most of us have a rainy day fund. We call our cash reserves, like in the cab. We came out of the recession, the Great Recession, where we had lost 50% of the home values in the homes. So you can imagine how that was a deficit. But now fast forward today, we have about $125 million cash reserve ready to help us as we deal with the throes of life and recessions or may come forward. So thank you for sharing that information. But local governments are prepared as well. That has been uh, reiterated. There's a great segue. You mentioned the collapse in housing prices. Howard Chernick, who is really one of the the terrific academics in in the field of uh, local revenue, he's at CUNY, and he asked us, to what extent is the increase in residential housing prices and rents, to what extent is this going to offset the decline in commercial property values in terms of the effect on property tax revenues. He asked about it in cities, but counties also are big property tax levyers and collectors. So for especially for our state and local focused members of the panel, what's your reaction to Howard's question? I think it's it's going to be, as I said this earlier, really location specific. It, it depends on the kind of the specific nature of what is your tax base as, as a local government. Are you more like in New York City or are you more like potentially more rural area where the commercial real estate valuations don't matter as much? And what your tax profile is as well, right? Are you primarily property tax driven, which is most local governments, or do you have a more diverse mix? Do you also benefit from income and sales tax, which generally has been more positive. So it's going to depend very much on which specific location you're talking about. We do expect to see pressure on commercial real estate for sure. I mean, I talked about the castle numbers. We're nowhere near the pre-pandemic office occupancy levels. And that is starting to show up in valuations. Every locality does the valuations a bit differently, of course, but that level of demand on the office side is definitely showing up. I mean, look at where we are today, all of us, right? I don't think, maybe Larry, I don't think any of us are actually in 
our regular pre-pandemic offices today. That is for sure. Commissioner Johnson, have you, what are you seeing in terms of commercial property values across NACO and in, in DeKalb County right now and in tax assessments? Well, it's been a pretty steady so far. I mean, you come to Georgia, you come to counties like DeKalb, you can't find a place. I mean, it's, this is one of the hottest markets I've seen people buying property sight unseen. And in DeKalb, we have the luxury of having a, a splash, which is a special purpose local option sales tax. So we help offset property taxes at the same time. And you add your homestead exemption. So for a home that's like 250000 your county taxes will be no more than about $350 a year, which is phenomenal for uh, area. And we talk about those things. And what Mr. Kim said earlier is all about location, location, location. And that's going to determine a lot of the impacts of property being impacted by uh, the recession. And But it's all about, about your fiscal, how fiscally sound your policies are. And having a rainy day fund is really going to help a lot of counties. But right now, it hasn't been a fall off per se, because I see a lot of companies are now getting a lot of their leases renewed. People actually who wasn't in the market for space are now going out to look for space. And, and so it's a, <laughs> it's a catch-22. What may be bad for some may be good for others. So it, it just depends on your economic situation. So right now, we're seeing an upswing. But like you said, your economists have talked about, you can't really predict the future because the economy is not based on the normal factors that we normally base it on. And the pandemic has, has shown that it's a much different type of uh, atmosphere than, the, than in the past. Bill, may I take it from there and, and then turn it back to you for a question that follows on Larry's comments and goes back to something that Eric, you said a bit earlier. And to take the longer view beyond 2022, and bring in the technology, the remote technology, the work from home. And you said, Eric, that this is going to begin to play out and we're gonna begin to see this. Not only are we working from home, but our homes can shift to lower taxing states. Do you see that as a likely outcome? Is that a threat? And I'd love your views on this as well, Lucy, and perhaps back to Torsten and Mark on longer run. And do you see these shifts? And also shifts back to good spending versus services spending, which will also have an impact on revenues. So first, maybe Eric, you want to take that? Sure. Yeah. I think if you look back to the long arc of history globally here in the U.S., the death of cities has been proclaimed many, many times over. But that trend of urbanization and the benefits of that have continued over time as you look back at what's happened. So I'm not ready to say, and I don't think anyone well, we're not ready to say that that cities are going to be fundamentally weaker from here on out. We think there's ab- absolutely pressure, and particularly on, on cities with large downtown office cores. You're seeing that in the employment metrics. You're seeing that in the revenue numbers. Places, again, like New York, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, those places have been more pressured, but those ratings, the credit quality is still high. There have been some downgrades in there, but we expect the long-term trend to still be very positive over time. There's risk, absolutely. And I think 2022 is going to be an important year. We'll start to see exactly what office dynamics look like, but it's not going to be the final answer either. This is going to take some time to, to shake out as to what work looks like. Five years from now, are we, are we just going to be back where we were and think, oh, this was a very strange period, or are we going to be fundamentally different? We're not quite sure yet. Thank you. Lucy, perhaps you want to weigh in. Do you see a movement to low tax states? It's hard to say. 
to be perfectly honest, what's the longer term impact on remote work. But looking at the migration patterns, we haven't seen that much of the movement based on the tax rate per se as where the opportunities are. Even if you are working remotely, it's highly likely that you have to be within the same geographic area. And if we look at the migration patterns, actually, we see that most migration occurs for people aged 65 and above. So they have more flexibility to move because they are at retirement age. We see more migration. And where are they moving? Well, it depends, right? For example, Idaho is the state that has been seeing strong population growth for the several years in a row. And then Florida is another state. Like most retired New Yorkers move to Florida, but also we see large number of New Yorkers moving to California and to DC. Both places are high income tax states. Right. Thank you for pointing out the importance of the metro job opportunities as well. We only have a few moments left. Just to add to that, remember, we're in a virtual type of state. That means you can live in a different place, but now you have to focus on the experiences around the place, like the parks, the sidewalks, the schools. So you can live in California, but you work in, in Georgia. But the goal is what's around it. So what counties and cities have to do is how do you make the place around there attractive? Because you don't have to move to another state to have a job anymore. So that's more work for delivering quality of life. (laughs) Right. Briefly, Torsten, Mark, a minute each. Wrap up. I think remote work is a game changer and it's affecting migration flows. We get all the credit files in the country every month. It can see it's anonymized, obviously, so we can see address changes. Pre-pandemic, 250,000 net left urban cores for suburbs and exurbs on an annualized basis. It's now at 650K. It's come in a little bit, but only a little bit. It'll come in a little bit more as offices reopen, but we're now going back. And so New York City's got a world of hurt dead ahead, and places like Atlanta will benefit. Wrap up, Torsten. Final point, as we also just talked about the goods versus services I think that goods has been surprisingly strong and has continued to be very strong. But I do think that services, we saw a little bit of that before Omicron, but I think services come back very strongly. People want to go out and travel, stay at hotels, go to restaurants, fly in airplanes. So I think services growth over the next several years should be very strong. Thank you. We got to wrap up. We're at the top of the hour. So thank you to our panelists. Thank you to the great audience. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.